Good morning. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible uh, to Genesis 3 as we consider uh, the biblical account of the temptation and fall of man. We've been preaching through uh, Genesis, and if you remember in uh, Genesis 1, God creates the world and everything in it, and he declared it very good. In uh, Genesis 2, God plants a garden paradise, and he provides every tree that is good uh, for the sight and good for food for Adam and Eve. He places them in the garden, and he provides for them. And he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Um, Humanity was created in the image of God to rule the creation under the authority of God. We were to image or represent God. We were to manifest God's goodness and his loving care over the creation. God ruled humanity in the garden. And humanity was to extend God's rule over the face of the earth as we multiplied and subdued the earth. In Genesis 2.15, we're told that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and keep it. Those uh, two words, work and keep, are used together elsewhere in Scripture in connection with priests in their temple work. And perhaps it, that sheds light on, on what it means to work and keep it. Uh, often it's, they're translated serve and guard. Adam was to rule the creation, to serve and guard the garden paradise, to ensure the creation's faithfulness to its creator God. In this garden paradise of many trees, there were two trees that were unique. Uh, The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, The tree of life represented eternal life, a confirmation in righteousness. held out to humanity a promise that we have now received as Christians in Christ. It's the promise of what God will give to us in the new creation when he returns. A perfected reality, perfect bodies, and a perfect world. But in the pre-fall garden, man was in a state of Not perfection, but innocence. To be perfected, 
to be confirmed in righteousness, man must be tested. And he must remain faithful to God. And thereby he would be transformed by the tree of life to a higher level of existence. The kind of existence that Christ now provides for us as the second Adam. He was tempted. He was tested. And he remained faithful. Where Adam failed, Christ was victorious. And when Christ returns, we will be transformed to that higher state. Confirmed in righteousness where sin has no place, where sin will actually be an impossibility for us. We will not just be innocent then, we will be perfected as we partake of what Christ merited for us in his life, death, and resurrection. The life that Christ gives was offered to Adam. And that's what the tree of life is there for. If you think of Revelation 2, it's God who speaks when he says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Who is the one that conquers? It is Christ Jesus. And he shares that victory with us who are united to him in faith. The second tree, the the tree of knowledge, was the means of man's testing. Would man obey God? Adam was innocent on this road to perfection represented by the tree of life. And Adam had a certain original righteousness. God made him in his image, and so Adam was a moral, rational being. He knew what was good and evil. From the very beginning, man knew to obey God was good, to disobey God was evil. And so the tree of knowledge was not about cognitive information. It wasn't simply that Adam intellectually had to grow to know what was good and evil. He knew that already. He needed to experience the good by rejecting the evil. He needed to obey God and turn from temptation. The tree of knowledge, this knowledge is more experiential in the sense that it was about ethical deliberation, about judicial discrimination, about rejecting anything that questioned the goodness and faithfulness and obedience to God. In the face of testing, of temptation, 
Would Adam obey? Would he demonstrate his understanding of good and evil? Putting his knowledge into practice. He was to image God in his obedience to God. Adam was created to listen to God's voice, to obey God's command, to choose the good over the evil en route to the tree of life. He was, in practical terms, to learn obedience and thereby become perfect and qualified to eat of the tree of life. The same is true of Christ. As God, he was always perfect, but in his humanity, he had to learn obedience. Hebrews 5, 8 to 9, although a son, Christ learned obedience through what he suffered, being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. As second Adam, Jesus had to learn obedience to become perfect, to be the source of perfection for us. In Genesis, in the garden, Adam was going to eat from one of two trees. If he listened and obeyed to God, he would have learned obedience, eaten of the tree of life, and been confirmed in righteousness. But he ignored God. He responded in unbelief. He ate of the tree of knowledge, and this messed up world is, is the result. But in the story of the fall, and we'll look at it in three sections, we learn something about Satan. We learn something about ourselves and how we respond to trials. And we learn the truth about God. So look at Genesis 3, verses 1 to 4. 1 to 5, actually. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows 
that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Our text doesn't identify who this serpent is, but Scripture later identifies him with Satan, the enemy of God and therefore our enemy. In Revelation 12, 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so this serpent, this ancient serpent, this dragon, is Satan. And Satan's objective is to undermine God and to undermine what God is doing in relationship to us. We were created in the image of God in order, uh, Dan, how did you phrase it? To receive and reflect God's glory. We were created, well said. We we, (laughs) We were created to receive and reflect God's glory. We were made to image God, to show the glory of God to the rest of the creation so that the whole of creation would worship God. Satan hates God, and so he hates us. He is never out for your good, no matter what he promises you. Now, Satan knows already that he is defeated. He knows his end. He knows that he will lose in the end. In Matthew 8, uh, Jesus comes across two men who are demon-possessed, and the demons cry out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to to torment us before the time? The demons, the angels that were cast out with Satan, knew that there was a, a day of torment, a day of judgment that was coming, even if it hadn't fully arrived Yet, they knew that there was a day of reckoning. And though, even though Satan and his angels know that, they continue to war against God. And so they war against those made to reflect God's glory. And so Satan comes to the garden in the form of a a serpent in order to deceive and destroy that which he hates. But notice his approach. 
He doesn't come first making an accusation against God. He'll get to that. Uh, but at first, that's, that seems too brazen, too insolent. When he comes first, he simply asks a question. Did God say, don't eat of any tree? How can there be any problems with questions? I just want to make sure that I, I heard what God actually said. But in his question, he's setting up the woman. He exaggerates. Did God say you can't eat of any tree? He doesn't even mention the forbidden tree. But by asking the question, he brings her attention to focus on it. By emphasizing any and every tree, he brings the tree of knowledge into her purview. And he invites her to consider the tree of knowledge. How is it different from the other trees? He wants her to think of them all as equally good. The way she'll describe the tree before she eats that was good to the sight and good for food is the way that God described all the other trees in the garden. She began to see it as not really that different. And if it's not any different from the other trees, then what's the big deal? But Eve answers correctly. She, she tells Satan, no, there's only one forbidden tree. And God said, if we violate his command, if we eat or touch it, we will die. And at that moment, Satan, like the serpent he is, sees his moment to strike. You will not die. Satan attacks God's word. He attacks God's authority. He's seeking to undermine the, the clarity of what God has said and God's right to set limits on his creation. But worse than all of that, he actually impugns God's character. He begins to suggest if God really loved you, then why would God keep this from you? If you eat of this tree, you will actually be like God. What is God so afraid of? And why would he keep that good thing from you. 
doesn't sound like God's very loving, does it? We've heard that sort of logic time and time again, haven't we? God wants me to be happy. Why would God keep this from me? The innuendo is that God's law is not a gift from God. But his law is something abstract and too restrictive, just meant to spoil our fun. Notice Eve's focus is no longer on the superabundance of the garden, all of the good things that God has provided. It's not looking at all the other trees. It's now focused on that one singular forbidden tree. Satan separated God's command, God's law, from his good, kind, generous, and gracious character. And if we separate law from God's good character, then it just becomes hoops that we have to jump through. Dance, monkey, dance. Satan wanted to distort reality. But isn't that what Satan does? He distorts truth enough to deceive and to undermine our faith in God's goodness. It's his MO, it's how he operates. When things are good in our life, whether it's our own old sinful heart or Satan's darts, see, you don't really need God in this moment. Be your own person. Think for yourself. Leave God for the emergencies. God's too busy to care about this. Or when things are bad, what does he say? Is this what God's love looks like? God seemingly has abandoned you. So why don't you abandon him? Have those thoughts come to your mind? Satan doesn't care. As long as he can keep us off balance. As long as he can distort our view of God and our need for him and God's goodness, uh, he's satisfied. Why expect anything else from him? It's what he sought to do with Jesus. Think about the temptations of Christ in Matthew 4. Uh, Jesus has been driven into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. And scripture says after 40 days he became hungry. And at that moment, what does Satan do? He comes and he says, 
if you are the Son of God, turn those stones into loaves. God has driven you out here into the wilderness to fast. And as far as I can tell, he's left you here to die. So you should probably take care of yourself. Because God can't be trusted in this moment. Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I will trust God. What's the very next temptation? Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. And in essence, he says, you know what? You're right. You should trust God. Cast yourself off. Let's show God how much we trust him. And Satan even had a verse to go along with it. And God will lift you up and keep you from hitting your heel. It was only after Jesus refuted the first two temptations that Satan became more bold and impatient. And he took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all of these, I'll give them to you. All you have to do is just worship me for a moment. He promised Jesus without revealing the cost. Which is what he does in the garden and what he does with us. In the garden, he says, eat the fruit and you will be like God. What he doesn't tell them is if you do, footnote, you'll be cast out of the garden and will cost you your soul for eternity. Jesus responds as Adam should have, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Adam should have said, I hear one voice, I believe one voice, and I will obey one voice. Jesus responds in faith and dependency on God as the second Adam because the first Adam failed to do that in the garden.
so we see something about how Satan tempts and attacks. Notice the human response in verses 6 to 13 and what we learn about ourselves in it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. In the moment that they ate from the tree of knowledge, everything changed. We were created to image God to be eternally dependent upon God, to listen and obey his voice, to live all of life according to God's interpretation of reality, trusting him. But in Genesis 3, Satan comes with a a different interpretation of reality. And he called us to listen and to believe his deceiving voice and to question God. Satan called Adam to be autonomous, to think and act independently of God, and to assume the role of God deciding what was good and what was evil, what they should do and what they shouldn't. Satan said, you will be like God. And that was true. As Adam and Eve took upon themselves the role to be the arbiters of truth. They took the place of God in deciding what's right and wrong. But again, Satan hadn't revealed the cost. The cost was their fellowship and intimacy with God and with one another. The cost was the garden and the tree of life. All mankind is now twisted and distorted image bearers. We still bear God's image. 
but with every breath in our natural person, we rebel against what God is. Because we're born children of wrath, deserving of judgment. In our natural state, we listen to and agree with Satan's deception. In fact, we deceive ourselves as we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. We believe the lie that we are okay when in reality we stand exposed and naked before the living God. It's interesting, at the end of uh, chapter 2, it says that the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Growing up, that always... That's just too much information. And as Pat, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when he preached, talked about uh, nakedness uh, being part of the marital intimacy between Adam and Eve, and that's true. But their nakedness also demonstrated their transparency, not only with each other, but with the rest of creation. It's all there. It's hanging out. And they're just who they are, and they're okay with it before each other, before the creation, before God. But once they sinned, they felt shame. It was a new sensation. They had never experienced shame. And so they sought to hide from each other and from God. Their nakedness represented their shame because of sin. So what did they do? They they sought to do what humans always try to do. Cover their shame. Cover their sin by the works of their own hand. Verse 7b, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves, but the works of man's hands can never cover sin. We can try to hide our guilt and our shame by our good works, but our nakedness and our shame remains. We need to be clothed with the righteousness that is not of ourselves. We need the blood of a sinless lamb to atone and to cover our shame. Adam and Eve sought to cover their nakedness. They also began to shift blame. Eve blames the snake. My favorite is the man. He blames the woman. I don't have a problem with that part. (laughs) But it's the the, the audacity of it. The woman, who by the way, you gave to me, so in all this, I seem to be the innocent victim. (laughs) 
But blame shifting doesn't work either. It just spreads the liability to other people as well. We are the ones who must give an account for our own life and our own decisions to obey or disobey God. And the problem is in our natural state, in our sinful ways, we always choose to go our own way. We never choose the right. So what is to become of us? Uh, Left to ourselves, and this is the truth we, we, we learn about God, left to ourselves, we're all sinners deserving judgment. We've all sinned. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages, what you earn, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is just and holy. He must punish sin. But God is also merciful, full of grace and loving kindness. How can this be? It seems impossible. But justice and mercy meet in the person of Jesus Christ, who is our second Adam. He fulfills all righteousness for us. He lives a perfect life. And then he dies in our place, not for his own sin, but for ours. So that we can stand clothed in his righteousness. In Genesis 3, 4 to 19, God declares judgment for sin in Eden. He speaks to both the man and the woman, and he tells them that life will be hard. It will be filled with pain and death and dysfunction. Nothing will work as it was intended to do. But in verse 15, God is pronouncing judgment on the snake. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Sometimes that's called the proto-evangelium, meaning the first gospel. It's a picture of what would happen on the cross. The seed of the serpent would strike out to kill the seed of the woman, Christ. But in the process of the snake biting the heel, striking the heel, the heel comes down and crushes the head, destroying 
Satan and evil forever. It's God's promise of salvation through judgment. Jesus crushes Satan and evil. When God the Father pours out his wrath on Christ and crushes Christ. Jesus is the seed of the woman who receives the judgment that we deserve so that we might become the righteousness of God. And in him, our fellowship is restored. Our shame is atoned for. It's covered. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died, he was raised, and today he is enthroned in glory. And he prays for us. His life is our life. And in him we have overcome sin and death and have access again to the tree of life in the paradise of God. We are not perfect, but we are forgiven. And we are set free from the bondage of sin. Christ as second Adam is perfect now. And we will be like him when he comes to take us back to God's garden paradise. I'll end with just this quote from 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, when Christ returns, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that Satan, sin, and death cannot defeat you. That even as humanity chose to rebel against you, you had a purpose and plan to make us your own. And so, Father, this morning, for each person here that knows and loves you, may your spirit encourage them not to look to themselves, but to look to Christ. And in that, let us have hope. And for those that don't, Father, open blind eyes. Give faith to believe that in our life together, you might be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.